Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. The Long Read has moved to alert level 3 this week, but you're still stuck with me in the duvet fort, which is actually a fitting location to read you this week's story, Down the Covid Rabbit Hole, by Stuff National correspondent Charlie Mitchell. Ever since Covid-19 entered the global consciousness about 18 months ago, misinformation, rumours and conspiracy theories have sadly been part of the deal. They've even got their own name, the infodemic. For this week's story, Charlie has embraced all of these things and dived headlong into the online world where they originate and thrive. He spent three weeks immersed in social media and chat groups, trying to find out how and why these theories start, and more importantly, what drives their popularity, often in the face of overwhelming scientific evidence. This story is written in the first person, so ideally Charlie would be the one reading it to you, but there's a pandemic, so I am his lowly vessel. Here is me reading Down the Covid Rabbit Hole. A couple of weeks ago, shortly after the current lockdown came into force, I was alerted to a major scoop. It had been planned. It wasn't true, obviously, but... In looking at where this claim came from, I came closer to understanding the dynamics of the infodemic, the online spread of false or misleading information accompanying the spread of the virus. For the last few weeks, I've been camped out in New Zealand's online anti-vaccination communities, mostly on Facebook, Telegram and Gab. I wanted to replicate the experience of getting pulled into a rabbit hole. What is it like to be bashed over the head with these views, all day, every day? I began slowly, sprinkling these groups into my existing online habits, before diving in completely. This was how I learned the Japanese embassy in Wellington had predicted the lockdown, and also spread the word beforehand, seemingly without anyone noticing. This theory started circulating within 48 hours. An image of a Google results page for the embassy's website showed a post dated August 10, more than a week before the lockdown, stating that Wellington would be under Level 4 from August 18. It's a weird idea. Why would the Japanese embassy be told about the lockdown in advance? And why would they post about it early, with a timestamp? It reflects an unusual type of thinking in conspiracy theory-driven communities. The powerful, sinister forces manipulating world events always leave clues, like they're running an Easter egg hunt. It took a few minutes to figure out the truth. Google results usually extract the text at the top of a web page. When a website pins an urgent announcement, as the embassy had done, it overrides the text on previous posts, including those with timestamps. If you want proof, Try searching for COVID-19 vaccinations in New Zealand in 2018, and you'll find many clinics appearing to advertise the vaccine long before the virus existed. I wanted to know where such shoddy information had come from and why it was so easily taken as true. Digital contact tracing led me to the source, 
a qualified doctor who has previously worked as a general practitioner. I'm not identifying them because they aren't a public figure or currently practicing. Early in the pandemic, this doctor had shared articles about washing your hands and staying at home and proclaimed support for Director General of Health, Dr Ashley Bloomfield. A few weeks ago, they wrote that Bloomfield and others could be tried and convicted of crimes against humanity, a crime deserving of execution. I've seen this many times in the past 18 months. I'm a science journalist, and it was clear from the many emails I received from readers that vaccinations and the ongoing coronavirus pandemic had split us into different epistemic universes. Billions of people have had COVID-19 vaccinations, and they've proved remarkably effective at reducing hospitalisation and deaths from COVID-19, both in clinical trials and the real world. But people continue to be radicalised against vaccines, almost overnight, as they slip deeper into an online rabbit hole. It could happen to any of us, even doctors. So what's it like in that rabbit hole? And what is it that sucks people in and spits them out, transformed? I started this experiment at the perfect time. Just a few days in, the country entered a snap level four lockdown. And I watched as the communities I joined grew their ranks quickly. It's difficult to quantify the number of these groups, or even know what to call them. They're mostly driven by opposition to COVID-19 vaccinations, but also tend to oppose masks, public health restrictions, or anything associated with the COVID-19 response in general. Due to censorship policies from social media platforms, many groups are private, and they rarely publicise their anti-vaccination beliefs. This evasion has led to its own lexicon. A clot shot means a vaccine, in reference to an extremely rare blood clot side effect associated with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Blood clots haven't been associated with the Pfizer vaccine, the only one currently used in New Zealand. Some call it Maxine, or just use the letter V. It didn't take long to see what makes the pull of the rabbit hole so powerful. When I was dipping my toe in, anti-vaccination content appeared infrequently on my newsfeed, rarely at the top. That soon changed. The more I read, the more Facebook's algorithm shoveled it at me, knowing where my attention was increasingly directed. It sometimes feels like social media is a window we peer through, letting us see the world as it is. It's more like a mirror, Algorithms are constructing what we want to see and reflecting it back to us. Within days, I was seeing nothing but the rabbit hole. If Facebook is a sleek, finely tuned machine designed to steal your attention, Telegram is pure chaos. Unlike Facebook, Telegram groups are structured like an ongoing conversation. It has the effect of being in a group chat with thousands of people who are shouting about many different things at once. I've joined around a dozen of the most popular anti-vaccination channels, and the rate of new posts is a few per minute, which continues day and night. 
it'd be impossible to digest everything. Posts swing between hours-long interviews, petitions, memes, legal documents, rumours. Some of the information is reliable, if misleading, but most of it is not. When I'm on Telegram, I'm hearing that tens of thousands are dead after vaccinations in the US and Europe, and that TipTop's new ad campaign is secretly critical of vaccines. I'm told that Duncan Garner left MediaWorks because he was injured after his vaccination, and shown a clearly doctored video of Jacinda Ardern smoking meth, which some take as real and evidence of moral degeneracy. I hear that a German lawyer is busting it all wide open, bringing about the Nuremberg trials of 2021. And here's his latest video, but first I have to watch this, an X Factor winner's five-hour documentary about Satanism, which I stop watching when it's claimed Miley Cyrus is a Freemason. The speed is the point. It comes in so quickly. There's no distinction between real and fake, reliable or unreliable. It's a slurry of content sneezed upon me. It has the psychic effect of trudging into a hurricane, and I can see why someone would just let the wind take them. Hi, I'm Carol Hirschfeld, the head of video and audio at Stuff. If you're enjoying our Long Reads podcast, how about contributing to the Stuff Supporter Program? You can contribute any amount you choose, and you can do it just once, or monthly, or annually. Direct support from people like you helps us produce the kind of journalism you're listening to right now. Go to stuff.co.nz forward slash support. By the end of the first week, in the early days of lockdown, I was struggling to reconcile how these communities viewed the outside world and my own experiences. There's a pervasive belief that the rest of society is gripped by fear, that the vaxxers are hiding at home, clinging to their masks and their 1pm briefings, mindlessly doing what they're told, while a select few have the courage to resist. It's not what I see in reality. People muddling through, recognising that pandemics are bad for a lot of people, and a small personal sacrifice for the collective good can go a long way. The irony is that fear is the foundational emotion of these groups. It bleeds into most of what they do. It's fear that mass murder is taking place, that their vaccinated loved ones might die, that there is a global battle between good and evil, and so few are willing to fight on the side of good. Ultimately, it's a fear that no one believes them. I've been collecting stark and sad examples of this. The shock and grief I feel is akin to learning someone has cancer, one user wrote on Facebook, upon learning a close relative is planning to be vaccinated. It's sad because we always said we'd grow old together, another said, describing their soon-to-be-vaccinated siblings. Coming to terms with knowing you can't save everyone is, for me, the hardest thing. Early in the lockdown, one user revealed the emotional cost of going to New World without a mask and feeling the glare of judgment. I feel like nothing, they wrote. Like the worst person in the world. And it frightened me. I'm on my own and need to reach out. Someone please catch me. 
I would see frequent discussions about vaccine shedding, a phenomenon some believe causes them to become sick after being around vaccinated people. In one lengthy thread on Facebook, posters related going to the supermarket, coming back and gasping for air. Another says they developed a metallic taste in their mouth after being in public. One user says they won't visit their vaccinated mother for six weeks. Another says their entire family fell ill, including nausea and vomiting, after being around a vaccinated relative. To be clear, vaccine shedding in this context is physically impossible. It requires a live virus, and the Pfizer vaccine used in New Zealand contains genetic code to develop spike proteins, but not the virus itself. Even if these spike proteins shedded after vaccination, and there's no evidence they do, they could not, in themselves, cause symptomatic illness. Some know this and try a more complex argument, that spike proteins themselves are toxic, a claim unsupported by evidence. Why wouldn't you be fearful? If you thought that vaccines killed people and you lived in a country where millions of people were voluntarily being vaccinated, fear would be a rational response. Simply posting about it online would seem insufficient. Greater action would be necessary. That is where the frustration comes in. Despite the strong growth and membership of these groups, they've had little impact outside of their digital bubbles, which causes obvious distress. In the days leading up to August 31st, there was anticipation for a silent protest in front of council offices nationwide. In reality, it was anticlimactic. Barely anyone turned up, and in some cities and towns, no one showed up at all, including at Parliament. I wonder if this whole thing wasn't engineered to deflate us and make us all lose hope, one person wrote afterwards in a Telegram channel. Can see why people just quit, as no one is doing a thing, another said. A lot of yap yap, but no physical movement, only a handful around the country. Very sad. Day after day, there are repeated calls to action, demands to fight back, to wake people up, but no effective means of doing so. There's always an upcoming protest action or court case that could change everything, but none has been successful. There have been three such protests in the last few weeks, and all were duds. This is such a pivotal point in human history, one person vented on Facebook recently. We're screaming, but no one is listening. The utter frustration is unbearable. I get the impression that being part of these communities is like being huddled in a cold, dark cave, surrounded by kindling without a match. It's the logical consequence of sealing yourself off and seeing no need to persuade anyone of your point of view. One group is devoted to trawling the social media pages of news websites streaming the 1pm briefings and clicking the thumbs down button en masse. It's treated with the gravity of a battle, but comes across as feckless. A rare exception is the citizens' database of vaccine deaths, which many have rallied around as proof that vaccine deaths are happening all around us. The truth is that vaccine side effects do happen, 
including serious ones, but they are rare. People desperate to find things wrong with the vaccines will cite large numbers of deaths based on adverse event reports to authorities, which are not in themselves proof of anything. Anyone can file a report. We have such a system in New Zealand. Run by the University of Otago, it collects reports of adverse reactions, including deaths, which are followed up for any potential link to vaccination. One death in New Zealand has been linked to a vaccine side effect, and several more are being investigated for potential links. On the whole, vaccines are a powerful protective against a disease that has killed millions of people globally. There is a belief, however, that large numbers of severe reactions are being covered up and that the official information can't be trusted. Hence the Citizens Database. It's driven by Linda Wharton, an Auckland-based acupuncturist, and currently includes 117 people. The process underpinning it is unclear. Wharton declined to explain when contacted by Stuff and there's no obvious criteria beyond a death happening at some point after a vaccination. The list has been shared with authorities, which have not responded. The list itself mostly comprises older people, some in their 90s and one aged over 100, dying of natural causes at some point after being vaccinated. Some cases have no information at all, no age, location, cause of death or gender. It's unclear how they got on the list in the first place, if nothing is known about them. Nevertheless, the list is widely cited as proof of unreported vaccine deaths. The more time I spend in this world, the more I understand this is the perfect propaganda tool. As of this writing, 3.5 million vaccine doses have been given out in New Zealand, and two-thirds of people older than 65 have been vaccinated. Around 700 people die of all causes in New Zealand every week, 85% of whom are older than 60. The age groups most likely to die in a given week and most likely to be vaccinated are the same. What makes this database so effective is that it only requires two pieces of information, whether someone was vaccinated and whether they are dead. How one leads to the other is irrelevant. This could go on forever. If I'm vaccinated now and die of a stroke in 30 years, is that a vaccine side effect? What if I die of a brain aneurysm in five years? Without specific criteria for determining a vaccine side effect, anything can be one, and that's the point. It's not even a strong argument against vaccines, maths-wise. Around 2.2 million people in New Zealand have had one vaccine dose. Even if the death toll was 117, it would mean a fatality rate of 0.005%, about 20 times less than the seasonal flu and 150 times lower than the COVID-19 fatality rate in New Zealand so far. For vaccines to be as deadly as the lowest possible estimate of COVID-19, 0.15%, which is not deemed plausible by most experts, there would need to be thousands of deaths. Even the argument against vaccines supports their use. By the second week of my experiment, we're well into level four, and exhaustion is setting in. 
A Wellington doctor shared his anti-vaccination views and people were celebrating. He was a member of NZDSOS, an informal group of doctors, dentists and other medical professionals that reject COVID-19 vaccinations. I was immediately curious. The group popped up a few months ago and has around 50 doctors as signatories, most of whom are publicly identified. It sounds flash, but it's not. Cross-referencing every identified name with the medical register shows about half are currently practising medical doctors. Others are dentists, psychiatrists, unregistered or retired. Given there are nearly 29,000 registered doctors in New Zealand, it's a poor showing. The group is nevertheless cited as an authority in anti-vaccination communities. Among its signatories is Dr Simon Thornley, an epidemiologist at the University of Auckland, who has undergone an interesting pandemic journey, to say the least. Another is the doctor who originated the Japanese embassy conspiracy theory. NZDSOS shares some extreme views. The latest video, posted to its website, alleges the pandemic was planned and the virus is a bioweapon. The website recently linked to an opinion piece suggesting the recent lockdown in New Zealand was ordered by Bill Gates to vaccinate more people. Perhaps the most prolific figure associated with NZDSOS is Dr Sam Bailey, a Christchurch-based doctor who recently stopped practising and now produces videos to an audience of nearly 300,000 subscribers. She previously appeared on the TVNZ show The Checkup, but is conspicuously absent from the upcoming season. It's understood her views on COVID-19 are why. I see her videos everywhere, and they appear to be the source of some common claims in anti-vaccination groups. Among them is the claim that the PCR test is responsible for inflating positive COVID-19 cases, and that the virus has never been isolated. I mention this because the pace of anti-vaccination communities and the endless stream of links and videos and memes means contextual information disappears, and this is a case in point. Bailey argues against germ theory and is the co-author of a book that questions whether viruses believed to cause diseases such as AIDS, hepatitis C, chickenpox, polio and COVID-19 exist at all. It's an obscure medical theory, sometimes called germ theory denial, and has been likened to young earth creationism. It holds that lifestyle factors are mostly responsible, or in some cases solely responsible, for many diseases understood to be caused by viruses. To learn more, I take a leave of absence from Telegram and Facebook to read the book she co-authored. It argues, for example, that AIDS patients in wealthy countries are predominantly poppers-consuming homosexuals who lead a self-destructive lifestyle with toxic drugs and medications, behaviour the authors say is likely responsible for AIDS, not the HIV virus. Polio is attributed to the use of pesticides. SARS is deemed the result of environmental pollution from electronic waste. Swine flu is a hoax. You get the point. This goes beyond scepticism about the COVID-19 vaccines. Under this theory, 
no vaccinations work, including those for the likes of measles and polio. How many people borrowing these arguments know that this is the context in which they originated? By the time I return to Telegram, there are more than a thousand new posts. People are discussing how to import ivermectin without tipping off customs, and whether Chris Cairns had been vaccinated before his stroke. It's week three, and I've been defeated. It's not the quality, or lack thereof, of the information that's getting to me, or even the permanent state of fear and paranoia. It's the growing realisation that the divide has become so vast, it's uncrossable. We're lost to each other, marooned sailors washing up on different islands. I wanted to know if there was hope, and I knew who to ask. Somewhere along the line, I'd become aware of an odd situation. A Facebook group once devoted to fans of the political party Advance NZ had been taken over by a critic of conspiracy theories, who had turned the group into a recovery centre for its members, many of whom remained, even after the group changed focus. For months, the group's administrator had hosted polite discussions about conspiracy theories, looking for common ground and ways to challenge conspiratorial thinking. It is the rare online space where people from each side of the divide exist in roughly equal measure and manage to talk somewhat politely about their differences. I asked the administrator, who I won't identify given they've received death threats, whether they'd successfully changed anyone's mind through debate. I'm not really trying to get anyone to change their mind, they told me. The best I can realistically hope for is that some of the things I say might make an impression and others may use that knowledge when evaluating future information they come across. Some of the debates are long and might run into hundreds of comments, usually with no resolution. From the outside, it looks futile. People set in their views, talking past each other. Given this administrator has spent more time talking to conspiracists than just about anyone, I wanted to know, was it worth it? I stick with it because I learned some interesting things, they said. Not necessarily always about the topic at hand, but about how people think, how they locate and process information, and what makes them tick. A distrust of government or official sources, disillusionment with political systems or capitalism, big business or authority, often drives their thinking and research. It's frustrating at times, and I do have to bite my tongue and learn to walk away when I'm not getting anywhere. At the end of the day, they're all human, and are mostly a really nice bunch of people. It's just that they have some quite different ideas from my own. There's quite a few there I'd have a beer with. In the 1950s, a researcher wanted to know what happens when someone predicts the apocalypse and it doesn't happen. He followed an obscure doomsday cult, which had predicted aliens would save the group's members from a coming flood. Surprisingly, the group's followers didn't renounce their views when the world didn't end. If anything, they became more emboldened. Failure of the prediction had somehow increased their commitment to the group. 
It was a striking example of cognitive dissonance, a conflict between what we believe is happening and what is actually happening. Holding conflicting views in our minds is uncomfortable, so we work to reduce that discomfort. I thought about that often as I read the flow of predictions that COVID-19 vaccines were causing mass death, claims based on sparse and sometimes ludicrous evidence, including from people who should know better. We all deal with cognitive dissonance. I believe that killing animals is wrong, but I eat meat. I care about climate change and burn fossil fuels. The last three weeks were cognitive dissonance on another level. People would show extreme scepticism towards politicians, the media and modern medicine, which can be a healthy point of view in itself, but none whatsoever to rumour and gossip spread by anonymous accounts. As long as the claim roughly aligned with what they already thought, it was legitimate. The exact opposite of the scientific method. There will come a time when some in these communities will be confronted with the reality that vaccines are not an instrument of mass death. Billions of people have been vaccinated already. Even if we accept the fanciful death numbers advocated by these groups, vaccines would still be significantly less deadly than COVID-19 itself. What happens when this collective cognitive dissonance becomes unbearable. History suggests it will lead to further entrenchment of views, an expansion of the already insurmountable distance between us. Before I left, I returned to the most meaningful discussions I'd seen. They were between people clearly struggling with this divide in society, often in intensely personal ways. My partner is guilt-tripping me, one person wrote in a Telegram channel, says when COVID comes, I'll be at risk and likely to pass it on to the kids, says she'll have to take the kids away. Facing possible loss of job, house, family, another wrote. This has brought me to God, but man is it hard. Some say they've been through breakups and become isolated from friends and family. The COVID debate has cost all of us a lot of friends, someone wrote on Facebook. It is so cruel. In every case, there is somebody responding, offering comforting words. It's okay to feel this way, they'll say. It's a type of love bombing, a tool to increase devotion to a cause. One user says they've been fighting with their family who are pro-vaccine. They're urged to cut contact. I blocked both of my sisters on Facebook yesterday, they wrote. This morning, I blocked their phone numbers. Another replies, we're your family now. That was Down the COVID Rabbit Hole on The Long Read from Stuff, written by Charlie Mitchell and read by me, Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Jack Price and produced by me. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dunning. 
If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.